Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's the last week of April 2020. Seems like we're losing everything. Many of us are losing our jobs. Some of us are losing our homes. Some argue we're losing our freedoms. And unfortunately, all too many of us are losing our lives. Should be a time then in a way for misery, and yet we're being told by some politicians, one or two come to mind, that we should be cheerful, that we should think good thoughts. But perhaps this is the moment when we should be in praise of pessimism. Jennifer Senior is a New York Times columnist, and uh, her confession is that she has a secret talent for turning lemons uh, for sorry, for making lemons out of lemonade. Uh, Jen, should we? Is this the moment when we should be in praise of pessimism? Oh my goodness, yes. It's the title of my column. So yes, I can't actually walk away from that now, can I? I, 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 I can give many reasons why um, um, I think it's adaptive in moments like this. I think it's highly adaptive. I think that um, optimism is right for certain circumstances. Um, but I think if you ignore too many blinking red warning lights on your dashboard, you're not doing yourself or your, the people you're connected to any favors. Um, and I also kind of, I just reject the tyranny of positivity that is sometimes all around us, even under the best of circumstances. It feels like a very um, imposing claim on people. Um, I mean, think, I think about this as a parent. It's a very, un, it's a very unfair thing to ask your child to be happy, you know, and optimistic. I don't know why we ask anyone to be happy. Um, it's great as a byproduct of things that we pursue, but I do not know why we kind of try and make it um, an objective in and of itself or why we make optimism an objective. I think that should be the an outgrowth of something, you know, if we have reasons to great, but it's not where my starting position would be in a pandemic. Jen, is it an American condition to be optimistic, to be positive, to always think the best? Yeah, I mean, it's scribbled into one of our founding documents. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, in this way, yes. Um, but I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, you know, there are also, um, I mean, one of our, possibly our best president, um, Abraham Lincoln, there's a persuasive case to be made that he suffered from depression and that it was precisely his um, depression that kind of focused him and made him wrench meaning out of what was in front of him. So, uh, yeah, you know, again, I think it's it's never that easy <laughs> ever. Um, but yes, you can make a claim that we're, we're sort of disadvantaged in this way and that this is supposedly um this is supposed to be one of our aims is the pursuit of happiness which again i object to i think it should be an outgrowth of the thing we pursue not the thing that we pursue in your 
New York Times column uh, in praise of pessimism. You, I wouldn't say you collapse depressives and pessimists, but you compare them. You put them side by side. What's the difference between a, pro- a depressive and a pessimist? Oh, well, there are, uh, yes, I was very careful, actually, to say that if you wanted to take a step back, there's generally depressives are realists. And to the extent that the two are correlated, um, we should think about that. But they're different. I, they're different in a couple of ways. First of all, you can be um, a sunny pessimist and you can be a sunny depressive. Um, and you can be, there is sort of dispositional pessimism where you are truly Eeyore. You're kind of a mope, you're a gloomy gus, you know, you're, you're, you bring down the energy of a room. Um, there's also philosophical pessimism where you ultimately believe that just life is about suffering and it's tragic. Um, but there are also people who are just kind of contextually pessimistic or it, it's their cognitive kind of proclivity that they'll think something through and think, oh, you know what? I, I just don't see this working out. But it doesn't mean they, they, they move through the world and bring everyone down with them. It's These are um, kind of walled off. And depression comes in all forms. You know, I mean, I was only talking about the fact that one of the features of depressive thinking often tends to be very pessimistic thinking. It's the belief that you won't get better. It's the belief that, you know, things are going to... Um, you know, and it's an and and there and depression involves a lot of cognitive dis- distortions, which is telling yourself the worst possible story about the things in front of you. And pessimists often do that, but actually, there are times when pessimists there are times when pessimists are much more realistic, I think, than d- depressives are. You introduce in your column a well-known literary character Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Is Eeyore the quintessential pessimist? Well, he's, I think, our cultural shorthand for it. And he's not bad in that way. And actually, like all the, if you watch all the YouTube clips, all the old, you know, I mean, he he's done in this really beautiful grumble you know, the whole way through. But yeah, I mean, his inclination, I mean, everybody else in the Hundred Acre Woods sort of rallies around and creates, you know, brings him around to see that the world isn't so terrible. But his inclination is to see everything at kind of a 30 degree angle yeah i'd say and you like him i mean you feel comfortable with him he's your uh he's he's your literary symbol yeah yeah i mean my spirit yeah Yeah. sure so you you are uh would you describe yourself as a depressive or a pessimist or both or neither a little bit of, I would say a little bit of both, but I'm, but there's a sunny overlay on both of those things, right? I mean, depression is something I've struggled with, you know, since I was about nine or ten. But um, it's not totally, it's not very clear to people who um, see me day to day. It's much, much, much more clear to close friends and family, um, and for instance, my spouse. Um, and pessimism, you know, it's it's more of the defensive kind. I would not say that I approach every situation pessimistically. Um, I do not, for instance, write a, a column or write a story and think I'm going to get utterly savaged for it. Like I think a depressive, like a truly depressed person, a thoroughgoingly depressed person or a thoroughgoingly 
pessimistic person might be more inclined to think that everything is a failure and that everything is going to go wrong. You know, these are, of course, all questions of degree. So I would merely say that I am somewhere on the spectrum for both of these conditions and just feel more comfortable, particularly during the pandemic, leaning into those particular tendencies of mine. They feel comfortable and they feel adaptive and right. Do you think that the the uh, the coronavirus crisis kind of confirms your view of the world as if you always assumed that things were going to go bad and now they have and that makes you feel more comfortable, less anxious? Well, that's very funny. You know, I was in New York during September 11th too and I remember a doctor friend of mine telling me that he was a GP and he was saying that um, he was seeing far fewer people because um, all the hypochondriacs had stopped showing up because something bad had actually <laughs> and something actually bad to focus on. You suddenly are not so kind of internally wound up. Um, I, I think that to the extent that um, I think it's a little different in that if you think about neuroticism, let's say, um, or pessimism or, or depression, any of these things as having a component of dread where you're waiting for the other shoot a drop or that you feel like you have not sufficiently suffered and you know that suffering is coming. That's the only reasonable position to take because everyone does suffer. It is foolish to think that you will be unbuffeted by the currents of either history or just the randomness and, you know, of life and ill luck. Eventually bad things happen. You lose people, you love things that are dear, you love, you lose jobs, you lose, you know, in catastrophic cases, your country, you lose democracy. There are all sorts of things. So I think that um, it, it, it might depend on your disposition, how acutely you feel that coming. Um, George Valiant, how did he put it? He's um, a psychiatrist and he was in charge of the Grant study, which looked at all of these men who went to Harvard starting in the, God, I can't remember what year, but it's this long longitudinal study of well-being among these guys who went to Harvard and what made them happy and what made them not happy. Anyway, he talked about um, joy being grief inside out, that when you feel joy, you are implicitly afraid of it because it's tied to a feeling of loss. You know, the minute you start to ecstatically experience something that's quite happy, that you run the risk of losing it, which is why every parent will look at their sleeping newborn and suddenly be possessed with the thought, oh my God, I, life is so fragile. What if I lose this child? There are all these kind of, you know, feelings of the ten, you know, feelings of tenuousness that I think beset all of us. And again, it's just a question of kind of who we are. You, uh, earlier this month, you wrote um, a very provocative column about marriage in the age of the coronavirus, <laughs> that it brings us closer together and also exposes some of the, you know, the, 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 the natural problems with marriage. Do you think that the best marriages are between pessimists and optimists? And do you think that Women make better pessimists? Easy question. Right. I, I mean, anecdotally, all I can tell you is that it does seem that women are more pessimistic in almost any marriage I look at and most coronavirus sort of situations, straight marriage, I should say. Um, you know, it, when I hear anecdotally, which one is the nervous Nelly and the worry ward and the one who's Cloroxing things and who is stocking up early and thinking four steps ahead, it was almost invariably the woman in a straight relationship and not the guy. Um, 
And I think in the population, I mean, women report higher levels of depression. I'm not sure if they report higher levels of pessimism. I think it would stand to reason. Um, I don't know if pairings are the key. Um, uh, You know, you could make the case that balance is not a bad thing. I'll tell you what I think is the most predictive in a situation like this. I think that the marriages in which you each give the other side a fair hearing and acknowledge the reasonableness of their point of view. Those are the marriages that are going to do the best because um, it's not like I know. I mean, my absolute, my, my, I can't be certain that things are going to just go south the second we reopen the economy. You know, I'm, I'm, I suspect that things will not go particularly smoothly. I fear a second wave, which all scientists seem to say is not only likely but could be worse than wave one. Um, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't listen to someone who could say, well, you know, like, like my husband who can marshal, you know, what he's been reading. Um, as long as I acknowledge the legitimacy of another point of view, I think it's fine and vice versa. I wonder if maybe this is a, a subject for a future column for you. I wonder if there's something pe- peculiarly male about the stock market. Oh, my uh, God. Explain why it's, I, I, yeah. why it's rising absurdly at this time of, you know, we're on the verge of a Great Depression and, and, and the stock market is going up and up and up. It would be such an interesting experiment to run to see if, if really most of the people active, in, if, if it were, if, I don't know what the percentage is of, you know, those who are women and those who are men who are actively doing the buying and selling and trading during the day. It would be fascinating if you just reversed it and they, you know, did a, comp- a photo negative where it was the women were men and the men were women. I mean, I think it would, it would look a lot different and it would have all along, is my guess. Yes. And I do, and and that's all about you know when when it pays to be um, you know bearish and when it pays to be bullish, and it's paid very handsomely to be bullish in the last you know decade. It's paid off handsomely, but 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 I was thinking about this the other day. It's the bears who have kind of made a like obscene fortunes, right? Like George Soros, all these people who who. Uh, shorts who sold, I don't know how you say it, sold short, short sold, who are short selling. It seems like that's yeah. true, like the mega money is to be made. It's where you actually stipulate failure. <laughs> you know? What about your favorite politician, Donald Trump? You've written a lot about him. Um, yeah. You you suggest in, in, in your piece about pessimism that optimism can tilt into self-delusion. You're, of course, referring to him. Um, is he just kind of off the charts for all this, or does he his own kind of ill ill informed or made up or unrealistic or narcissistic optimism, whatever you want to call it, it does think, it epitomize something exactly. broader? I think it's different. I mean, I think dangerous optimism might come in the form of like George W. Bush during the Iraq War when there were plenty of um, warning signs and he didn't seem to have the receptors for them, you know. Um, and didn't then you know couldn't necessarily see when things were going quite but poorly, um, or listening to people who were telling him that they needed more people on the ground, whatever they needed. I, I, Trump is different. Trump is totally different. I think that the kind of optimism that he's preaching is much more. I, I mean, I can't see Trump without seeing his pathologies, right? I I, I can't 
separate them. I mean, I, I think he is only to be viewed through the prism of his pathologies, which is a certain kind of malignant narcissism um, combined maybe with some other things. But the malignant narcissism is the most obvious. And one feature of narcissism, you could argue, is just that, you know, wishing things into existence and making them true because you can't get beyond the whatever is in your own head. You can't actually, there is no outside world beyond your own head. And so if he wishes there to be something, there is. Um, I, I would not call Trump happy or unhappy. I mean, he actually seems to be quite distressed these days. You know, you can't read an account in the Washington Post or the New York Times or Politico without hearing about him melting down, throwing tantrums. I mean, I think he's in a lot of distress. Um, so the optimism that he's... It's probably because he's been reading the columns. Yeah, it's probably because he's been reading your columns. <laughs> you know, one always wonders, what, what, I mean, he claims not to look at all of these things, but of course he does. I mean, his... You know, he spends a great deal of his press conferences directly refuting Maggie Haberman and then playing her back, you know, my colleague um, in the newsroom. So I, I, I'm, you know, right. suspicious. Yes. I, but I don't know if he reads me. I, I, have, I have no clue if I make the cut. Jen, what are we learning from this or what are you learning from this crisis in terms of broad lessons of making the world a better place? Oh my gosh, that's like such an interesting question because of course, um, I feel like we've all slid so far down Maslow's kind of hierarchy of needs. Like we're also focused just on very basic things like getting groceries, making our livelihoods and being physically safe that I find myself, although I know it's my job to do like a kind of larger analyses in terms of like the kind of big takeaway lessons. I mean, I would... Uh, I'm afraid that I'm going to be profoundly unoriginal. I mean, I, I am interested in sort of seeing, I've always considered democracy kind of a jump ball post-Trump. Like I, I, I didn't know where it was all going to go. And I feel like the same can be said about this, where like, I am very eager to see, uh, is this going to give people the taste for big government that the, the United States is really required from the get-go? You know, now that we've exposed our weak, I mean, we already knew our weaknesses. We already knew how many people were food insecure. We knew how many people were kind of wage insecure and healthcare insecure. We knew all of those things, but now it's so painful to see. And it requires, uh, you know, uh, being, it requires, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Redress immediately, you know? I mean, we have to, so I, I guess um, this isn't uh, a lesson. It's a question. I, I, this comes to me in the form of a question. You know, like I'm, I, I am wondering whether or not we are going to vote overwhelmingly as a nation for big government programs. Because to me, the lesson, of course, is that we need them. But I always, but see, I already thought that. So really, all that does is confirm something that I lazily thought to begin with. That's not much of a lesson, is it? That doesn't. Um, that's not a satisfying answer. I mean, I'd have to think. Do you find Biden, given your pessimism or your natural pessimism and your willingness to praise it, do you find Biden annoyingly optimistic in his cheerfulness? Of course, he's not as delusionally cheerful as Trump, but he's still saying the same thing. You know, Americans have got through this before. We should be cheerful. We 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 should be positive. Is is there a problem with that argument? Uh, not if it's tempered with all the other things, not if you say, but at the moment, but X, Y, Z, right. Then it's okay because it's true. Americans have, whether it's, um, 
a little bit silly to argue at this point, you know, that, I mean, we don't feel, um, I think the same social ties to one another. I don't think we feel as connected as a nation. That's all true. Um, I think that um, we are more polarized along many different axes. I think that's all true. Um, would we all have rallied if we'd had a good pre- a president who had spoken to our better angels? I mean, would I, yeah, I think we would have actually. I still th- appeal to our better angels. I think we would have. I, I, I still think that there is a fantasy like 80% president out there who could have rallied the same support. I do. I mean, I think certain governors, you know, uh, approval ratings are through the roofs right now for a reason. I think that they're, they're rallying everyone in their states. You know, Mike DeWine in Ohio has broad Democratic support. He never used to have it. He's got it now. You know, Andrew uh, Cuomo has a lot of Republican support that he never used to have. I, I, I don't think it's dangerous or, or silly if you can mitigate. And in moments like this, that's actually a delusion I'm willing to, I mean, that's a form of optimism that I think is actually um, healthy for for a nation that's really um, struggling and suffering. I think that that's okay. Again, if it's tempered. Yeah, well, it's coming through. It's coming through, Jan, your cheerful pessimism. <laughs> Finally, uh Finally, you used to be the the book critic for the New York Times, so you've read probably more books than than almost anyone. Uh, But a book or two that people might or should be reading during the crisis, which uh, other people perhaps aren't talking or writing about. Unusual books, books, excusing the pun, off the shelf, out of the box books. Out of the box books. I mean, one thing that occurs to me is... um, the way we live now, um, Anthony Trollope. I mean, just about another moment in time about like you know a culture of outrageous excess, um, and the people in that culture mm. being their kind of comeuppance. That's one thought. Um, you could read, you know, the lottery. <laughs> I mean, just if you want to, you know, uh, kind of uh, read about like the dread of randomness, right? Um, mm. Uh, if you're looking for counter-programming, nothing puts a smile on my face if, more, quicker than P.G. Woodhouse. Um, I'll, I would read any. Mm-hmm. Uh, Birdie and Jeeves is sort of what my my comfort food. Um, uh, you know, I'm a. I mean, there, you could read all sorts of books about sort of medicine right now that you want that were not. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of whether um reading well <laughs> you know i was gonna say sherwin newland when how we die but you know what no one wants to read that they want to fall asleep forget it um let's go to my friend bob colker's book uh you know hidden valley road it's as fine a piece of nonfiction writing as i've narrative nonfiction as i've read in i don't know how long um that was oprah's pick this month so it's hardly popular but um I loved it before Oprah did. I read it in many incarnations before that. And it was, it's been great from the beginning. So I'd say that. What did it teach you? What does it teach us, that book? Oh, it's interesting. That book, um, well, actually, I had a very strange takeaway from that book. It's about 12 siblings, six of whom have schizophrenia, which made me wonder, I wonder mm. if every American family had 12 siblings, whether you'd find all sorts of recurring patterns in six of them. Right. We don't have like scaled families like that in the United States. I mean, we're looking at that with utter shock. Oh my goodness, how could six be schizophrenic? Um, but 
you know, th- that was one sort of obscure takeaway point that I had was I thought, my goodness, if we all had 12 families, what kind of uh, amazing, overwhelming repetitions would we see that wouldn't only be, you know, um, biological health phenomena, but maybe, well, I mean, schizophrenic, I'm sure has a huge biological component, if not exclusively one, but in terms of mental health phenomena, what would we see? Um, but one of the takeaways I think from that is it is amazing to me how fat a target mothers are for almost any ailment in a family. And that, I mean, he does a very good job showing what a radical departure it is for a culture to not blame a mother for the way her kids turn out. It's really, it's such a modern kind of phenomenon to believe that other things might be responsible um, for our personalities. I mean, long ago, you know, one could argue that the devil had possessed us, but um, so that was um, profound. Also the kind of, uh, what else did I learn? I guess that there are many ways to adapt to trauma and that's a good lesson for now, right? I mean, that all sorts of adaptive coping mechanisms work. The siblings who are healthy in that family of 12 kids all coped in very different ways. And I wouldn't say any one style was superior to another. So um, the same could be said of this pandemic, that how you cope with adversity is, it's going to be quite idiosyncratic and no one's really got the right strategy. It's just their strategy. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.